This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Mercenary We here at the Word of the Week, being fantasy gaming fans, are quite familiar and well acquainted with the world's second oldest profession. It's something that frequently comes up in fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons. In point of fact, most heroes in tabletop fantasy adventure games are members, officially or unofficially, of said profession. We're speaking, of course, of the mercenary profession. Sellswords, freelancers, soldiers of fortune, freebooters, folks who specialize in doing violence for money. It's a common enough plot, after all. Some small village is having trouble with a local dragon or local orcs or local bandits. The desperate villagers pool what little wealth they have and send a representative out to find someone to help defend said village. The representative turns up one or two or three or, well, say seven such willing professionals. The representatives return, help unite the villagers, and ultimately drive off the bandits. Yes, that plot is right at home in any D&D game. But if it sounds familiar, that's because it's also the plot of one of the most famous and critically acclaimed movies of all time. We're talking, of course, about Pixar Animation Studios' 1998 animated classic, A Bug's Life. Did you think we meant something else? Okay, okay, it wasn't an original story when Pixar did it. It was, in fact, a retelling of Aesop's famous Ant and the Grasshopper fable, retold by way of the classic 1960 American Western film with an all-star cast, The Magnificent Seven. And The Magnificent Seven was, of course, a cowboy-themed retelling of the renowned classical piece of Japanese cinema written, edited, and directed by the legendary filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, known as Seven Samurai. Now, if you're not familiar with the great Akira Kurosawa, then frankly, shame on you. Shame on you. Akira Kurosawa is a master of cinema. He's one of the greats. And even if you never watched a Japanese film, you've seen Kurosawa's work. As we've mentioned, you've probably seen a version of Seven Samurai, as it is recognized as one of the most remade and imitated films in the world. And if you like classic westerns, you should know that A Fistful of Dollars starring Clint Eastwood as the man with no name was a retelling of Kurosawa's Yojimbo. But perhaps you're more familiar with Hidden Fortress. It's the story of a peasant and a thief who team up with a retired, exiled swordsman to rescue a princess from an evil army and escort her back to her family with an important secret treasure. No? We were sure you'd probably seen something like that. In point of fact, George Lucas has made no secret of the fact that Hidden Fortress hugely inspired his first Star Wars film. Though he may have glossed over just how much of an influence it was. In the book, The Secret History of Star Wars by Michael Kaminsky, it is revealed that Lucas was struggling to write a synopsis for his intended film that his producer didn't think was a steaming pile of garbage. After several unsuccessful attempts, he turned in something that looked suspiciously exactly the same as the summary of the Hidden Fortress found in a professional encyclopedia of cinema 
but some of the names changed Mad Lib's style. Eventually, Lucas did get a chance to show Kurosawa his appreciation. What happened was this. Kurosawa hit rock bottom. Kurosawa had been born to a well-to-do family in Tokyo, Japan in 1910. According to his father, the family had a long-respected lineage that could be traced back to the samurai line in the 11th century. But despite their lineage, Kurosawa's father was quite progressive and felt his family should be exposed to various world cultures. Thus, Kurosawa and his siblings were exposed to a burgeoning Western film industry from a very young age. When Kurosawa applied to art school, a renowned Japanese director named Kajiro Yamamoto saw his application and personal essay. The director hired Kurosawa immediately as his assistant director. When World War II broke out, Kurosawa was deemed unfit for military duty, and during that time he was promoted to director and allowed to continue his work. He demonstrated his skills with several movies, but his career really took off with his first true international hit, Rashomon. Rashomon was a unique film, and another film whose format has been imitated countless times. It is the story of a murder mystery and is told in four acts. Each act shows the events surrounding the murder as described by a different character. And that movie earned Kurosawa international renown. He followed it with Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, a retelling of Shakespeare's Macbeth, and then Hidden Fortress. Then he started his own studio and produced the aforementioned Yojimbo. But then everything came apart. An economic recession in Japan, combined with an explosion in the popularity of television in the 1960s and 1970s, tanked the Japanese film industry. As a result, Kurosawa sought work in Hollywood. But he had trouble gaining financial backing for his projects and had personal and creative differences with the Western Hollywood culture. Most famously, those differences led 20th Century Fox to fire him from their production of the Pearl Harbor film, Tora Tora Tora. Another classic worth watching, by the way. Out of work, forgotten, and fading into obscurity, Kurosawa sank into depression. He worked on a few minor projects in Russia, but he resigned himself to the fact that he would never direct again. He even attempted suicide. But then, George Lucas stepped in. Leveraging the massive success of Star Wars, Lucas convinced Francis Ford Coppola and 20th Century Fox to back a new project by Kurosawa, an epic samurai adventure of grand proportions called Kagemusha. Kagemusha returned Kurosawa to his former glory. He earned a grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival and an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. After work with Steven Spielberg on another project, Kurosawa was given a special honorary Oscar to recognize his entire body of work and its influence on the worldwide film industry. Unfortunately, in 1995, while working on another project, Kurosawa broke his back in a fall. He never recovered from his injuries. Over the next three years, his health deteriorated, and in 1998, he passed away at the age of 88. But we digress. Our point, apart from the fact that Kurosawa is an amazing filmmaker and every gamer should see at least a few of his films, 
Our point is that mercenaries are one of those tropes that basically laid the foundation for fantasy gaming. Adventurer is just another term for mercenary. And mercenaries have a long, long history. We should note that what distinguishes a mercenary from a soldier has varied throughout the many years of warfare. After all, the word soldier derives from the Latin word for salary, so saying a mercenary is just someone who fights for money isn't really a distinguishing feature by itself. Mercenaries, however, generally have no cultural, political, or social ties to the people who are giving them their orders. In many cases, they are not citizens of the cities or nations for which they are fighting, or at the very least, they have no particular allegiance to the nation for which they fight. They will, in fact, fight for whichever side is paying the most. And that has led some historians to call the mercenary the male equivalent of the prostitute. Prostitution is, of course, frequently called the world's oldest profession, and historical records indicate the first true prostitutes were employed in shrines in Sumeria in 2400 BCE. The first records we have of mercenaries date back to around 1500 BCE, when Egyptians invaded the land of Syria and indicate that their army was larger than their population could reasonably support. It seems the Egyptians were using foreign hired soldiers to round things out. And this sort of thing became increasingly common in the ancient world. Egyptians hired Greeks and Nubians, the Persians hired Arabs, and one of the most famous mercenary armies in the ancient world was a Greek company called the Ten Thousand who fought in the Persian Civil War. What happened was this. King Darius of Achaemenia in Persia had two sons, Artaxerxes and Cyrus. This was around 404 BCE. Artaxerxes, being older, inherited the throne. Cyrus inherited nothing. Cyrus the Younger wasn't as happy with this arrangement as you might expect. After being caught in a plot to murder his brother and being pardoned, he decided he needed an army. Meanwhile, a bunch of Hellenic soldiers found themselves with not a lot to do now that the Peloponnesian War was over. Cyrus hired the soldiers to fight alongside his own rebels. When Cyrus and his Greek soldiers met Artaxerxes' forces outside Baghdad, well, Cyrus's army kind of lost. And Cyrus kind of died. Obviously, that's not what makes the 10,000 famous. See, the 10,000 managed to hold out on their own. And when Cyrus fell, they negotiated a retreat, or they tried to. But the enemy generals were furious that Cyrus had brought foreign soldiers onto Persian lands to try and oust the rightful king. The leaders of the 10,000 were brutally murdered during the negotiations, and the massive army of Artaxerxes fell upon the 10,000. Over the next nine months, the 10,000 retreated from the heart of Asia Minor, all the way back to Greece. They were pursued doggedly and ambushed constantly. They faced brutal weather. Their supplies ran down to nothing. But they fought their way out of enemy territory despite all of that, with over 80% of their force intact. Of course, the use of mercenaries continued throughout the pre-medieval world. The Romans employed Germanic mercenaries frequently, as well as employing Celts and other peoples of the British Isles during the campaigns there. Hannibal of Carthage not only employed mercenaries, he trained them and outfitted them and built one of the world's first professional mercenary armies. 
and in the medieval world beyond Europe, Genghis Khan also made extensive use of mercenaries, though his hiring practices were a little more suspect. What generally happened was that Genghis Khan's army would sweep into some town, and lo and behold, if the local soldiers didn't just spontaneously offer to change sides and work for Genghis Khan, and so there was really no reason to go about slaughtering them all and raising the town. In a few places, such as the Khwarezmian Empire, where the soldiers didn't spontaneously decide they wanted to be mercenaries and work for Genghis Khan, what few soldiers survived fled the area and ended up forming mercenary companies to survive. The Khwarezmians, for example, went on to serve Sultan Saleh Ayyub in Egypt. On their way to defend the Sultan against his rebellious uncle, they stopped to conquer Jerusalem for the Muslim Caliphate in 1244, just before the Seventh Crusade. In Europe, though, the history of mercenaries gets really interesting just after the fall of the Roman Empire. In fact, they shaped the early history of medieval Europe. See, with the collapse of the Roman Empire, a general lawlessness descended upon southern and central Europe. The entire political structure in Europe basically collapsed, and you were left with all of these diffuse little pockets of isolated political power. Basically, small bands of people were left across the empire with no one to protect them from barbarians and raiders and brigands and each other. At the same time, the Roman Empire had an extensive military that suddenly had no one to sign their paychecks. And in many places, this led to a simple arrangement. Military veterans would protect the people, and the people would feed and serve the veterans. And thus you have the beginnings of feudalism. We've talked about feudalism before. Essentially, it's a pyramid scheme. At the bottom are the peasants. They provide food and labor. They work the land. The layer above them, the lords, provide them defense and security. And the lords themselves serve nobles above, pooling their strengths in return for mutual protection. This goes all the way up to the king. But it all started with people who were basically hired guns protecting rural villages left defenseless after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Interestingly enough, though, this led to a general decline in the mercenary tradition. Fealty and feudalism replaced it in many places. And Europe had shifted toward a tax and barter economy instead of a currency-based economy. But the mercenary tradition didn't die out. In causing its own decline, it also planted the seeds for a major resurgence that would come about in the 1300s and 1400s. See, Europe ended up at war, like all of Europe, or pretty much all of Europe that mattered at the time. But Western Europe, anyway. See, in 1066 CE, the Normans conquered England, and they had extensive holdings in France. And that meant that the English rulers were basically vassals, feudal subservients of the rulers of France. The Normans also had the support of the Papal States that represented the current power of the Holy Roman Empire. In fact, the Normans had invaded England on a sort of wink-wink-nudge-nudge type of approval from the Pope. Meanwhile, the English frequently ended up at war with the Scots, and the Scots were allied with the French. And the French wanted to consolidate their lands and get them out of British hands and started seizing British holdings in France. Portugal was somebody's ally, and various Germanic states like Bohemia were involved too. Somehow. Look, it's all really confusing, but the point is, the whole feudal mess exploded into multiple international and civil wars 
that have collectively become known as the Hundred Years' War. Now here's the thing. The conflict was so big that the feudal armies that consisted of lords leading to small groups of knights and a whole bunch of peasant conscripts in limited terms of service for their lieges just couldn't cut it. At the same time, currency was becoming a thing. And knights and lords could pay scootages, which were basically buy-your-way-out-of-feudal-oath fees. Thus, lords had a bunch of money, and there were lots of lords and knights who were free of their oaths and could serve someone for cash. Lords could also pay infantry to serve in their armies. And thus was born the concept of the free lance. Basically, a knight or foot soldier who carried a lance and didn't have a feudal oath to serve anyone and could thus work as a soldier for hire. And that, by the way, is precisely where the term freelance comes from. Suddenly, you had a paid professional soldier class, and Europe needed it because, as we mentioned, Europe was in the middle of a century of off-again-on-again warfare. The problem for those professional freelancers was that off-again thing. See, the Hundred Years' War wasn't a single massive conflict. Instead, it was a whole bunch of conflicts. And there were long breaks in hostilities, especially a particularly long one near the middle that lasted for over a decade. Now, when you're basically paid to be a soldier, a ceasefire that lasts for more than 10 years means you aren't making any money. So, you had a bunch of unemployed professional doers of violence, basically starving. Naturally, they banded together and took steps to ensure their not-starvation, which involved basically raiding and pillaging. This led to the organization of mercenary companies, this was a group of professional soldiers who banded together and had a chain of command similar to a military structure. Now, raiding and pillaging was all very good for survival. But as hostilities reignited, the mercenary companies found themselves with lots of new work. And that's when those companies started to function more like businesses. They would seek financial backers and even share the profits of their exploits with those who helped outfit and fund them. One of the first joint venture businesses that you could invest in, basically a precursor to the modern idea of investing in a company's stocks, was a late 1300s invasion of France by a mercenary company under English employment. Those companies, by the by, were called condottieri, which actually comes from the same linguistic root as the word conduct and referred to an extranational independent mercenary company. It's no accident, by the way that the word is Italian. Because if the Hundred Years' War was the inception of the mercenary company in Europe, Italy was where they thrived. See, Italy was kind of a mess between the 12th and 14th centuries. There was no central authority. The papal states had only limited power there, and the rest of Italy was divided into a bunch of warring states controlled by various feudal lords. Militarily, each of them was fairly weak, but those city-states had one thing going for them. They were extremely rich. They had a lot of gold. Enter the White Company, also called the Great Company. The White Company was a condottieri founded in the 1360s by the English knight Sir John Hawkwood. He recruited mercenaries who distinguished themselves during the Hundred Years' War, his men included English, Germans, Bretons, and Hungarians. 
They were skilled with lances and longbows. They were particularly renowned for lightning-fast ambushes and their willingness to fight during terrible weather or even at night to gain an advantage. Basically, they were THE mercenary company to hire if you had a lot of money and needed to defend your city-state. Or conquer a neighbor. Or free yourself from the Pope's authority. Or reassert your authority if you were the Pope. They did it all. Throughout the 12th and 13th century, the White Company fought for the Pope, they fought against the Pope, they fought for Milan, they raided Milan, they fought for Florence, and they made a killing. Figuratively and literally. And when they had no one to fight for, they would raid wealthy villages and towns to keep their own vaults full. Mercenary companies like the White Company were a blessing and a curse. If you had a war to fight and you were the highest bidder, you had an elite fighting force you didn't have to feed or outfit. But when there was no war to fight, they became dangerous raiders and brigands, and their loyalty could be bought. If your enemy could outspend you, they could send your rented soldiers right back at you. And thus, by the 16th century, mercenaries were falling out of favor. With the rise of nation-states and standing armies, mercenary companies became less prominent, though they still continued to play a role in history. In fact, national armies, for a time, sometimes loaned military forces for pay to other nations. Most famous of these were the Hessian mercenaries who aided the American revolutionaries. And even today, mercenaries, soldiers of fortune, and private military companies are still employed by many countries, including the United States. This is despite the official censuring of the use of mercenary forces by the United Nations in 1989. But before we end, let's return to where we started. Let's return to Japan and touch briefly on their own particular brand of freelancer. In The Seven Samurai, the main character, Takashi Shimura, who is hired to defend a mountain village and who in turn recruits his six associates, is not, in fact, a samurai. He is a ronin. Now, the word ronin can be roughly translated as mercenary, but there's a bit more to it than that. The word literally translates to wave man because they would wander from place to place like waves on the ocean. More figuratively, a ronin was a wanderer or a vagrant. But what they really were was masterless samurai. See, Japan also had a feudal system. That is, they had a system of fealty to noble lords. And in many ways, samurai were the equivalent of medieval knights. They were expert warriors who swore an oath of fealty to a lord. And they even had an analogous code to the chivalric code we discussed in the episode about the paladin. It was called the Bushido Shoshinshu, or Warrior's Code. Under Bushido, a samurai served their daimyo, their lord, for life. Unlike in Europe, they could not pay a scutage to free themselves from their oath. And their oath didn't even end on the death of their lord. If their daimyo died, the samurai was expected to commit ritual suicide, called seppuku or harakiri. And samurai, under the feudal laws of Japan at the time, could not serve anyone but their own master. So how do you get a masterless samurai mercenary? It turns out that some samurai were not keen to kill themselves just because their lord died. 
Of course, such samurai were dishonored. No other lord would ever employ them. And they lost the respect of all other samurai. But they were still skilled fighters. And they had to earn a living. So many ronin became bodyguards for wealthy merchants or hired muscle for various criminal enterprises. But some were lucky enough to get hired to defend little mountain villages from raiders along with their six buddies. The ones who didn't work for flea circuses, anyway. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.